let's all get back to our seats. Let's all get back to our seats. All right, that's, that's pretty good, you guys. All right, that's gonna be our new deal. All right, we'll do a, we'll do a full minute. You guys are getting back to your seats, that's awesome. A number of years ago, our family went on a trip to Peru. It was a wonderful trip that we went on to see our, the children who we were supporting through Compassion International. They put on the trip for us, and so we were able to go uh, down to Peru and meet the children, meet the, see the program that they were doing down there. It was beautifully, beautifully done. And they sent to go with us a man named Andy. Andy was a young guy from Colorado Springs, worked at Compassion, really on fire for the Lord, just a sweet, young Christian guy. And he was our host and our guide, and so he came with us to, um, to, the, to New York and kind of gave our whole family an update on what, was going, what we were gonna be doing. And then he was with us in Peru the whole time. He booked all of our, our transfers and our transportation. He was on the same hall in the hotel room, in the hotels with us. You know, he was at every single meal. We ate every meal together. We went on every train and plane and bus together. He was with us the whole time. And now it just turns out that at this moment in time, we have three boys, and one of our boys, I will not name which one, uh, so as not to, you know, uh, imply any of them, but one of them was in a somewhat angsty teenage period. Does anybody understand what I'm talking about? Present teenagers excluded. I'm sure you're never difficult and angsty, so I know that this group of teenagers is different. But my son was just going through a, somewhat of a period uh, of angstiness, and so sometimes over the course of the trip, because it was a whole week, we were together a lot, and so over the course of the week, he would get a little surly, uh, he'd show a little attitude, he'd get mad at us and stomp away and slam the door and all this kind of stuff. Now, it's one thing when this sort of thing happens at home, <laughs> in the privacy of your own home with just your family, you're kind of all used to it, right? But it was quite another when it was in front of this very sweet young man from Colorado whom we were trying to impress. At what a beautiful little Christian family we were, and then my son would be, you know, a little bit acting out. And I loved what would happen. So my son would, would have, we'd have a little moment and I would be feeling mortified and I would look over at Andy. And I love what he would say. He would just smile at me and he'd say, just keeping it real, keeping it real. <laughs> just keeping it real. I loved that because embedded in that phrase was first of all, no judgment of us. He was like, you know what? No, I, I'm, he's not saying get your household in order, Grams. You know, he was saying, look, he's a teenager. These things happen. If this is where he is, this is where he is. But I also love that it was in some way a, a, um, an understanding of my son to say, look, if this is where you are, don't try to be something you're not. Don't try to pretend. Be real about who you are. And how much better to have a child, a son, who tells you where he's really at than pretends to be something when he really isn't there. Keeping it real. And so we are starting a new series this week. It's going to carry us all the way till right before Thanksgiving. And it's the book of James. Why James? Because James is about keeping it real. It's about keeping it real. We are wanting to be ready for what God is going to do here at Gate City Vineyard. We want to be expectant and ready for what he's doing. We want to be on mission here. George spoke to us last week about it, being a light in our community and a light to one another. But if we're going to be that, then something real has to be happening here. It can't be pretend. It's got to be real. A real faith in the real world that 
that we can see and that other people can see. Now, people say the expression, get real. Well, what does that mean? It means stop being fake. It means stop being one way with this group of people and another way with this group of people. It means stop pretending. It means that you have something genuine and authentic, palpable, that's shown in our lives. And the opposite of that, of, of real, is fake. And it's so easy, isn't it, to have fake Christianity. We're really good at it. Because some of us have grown up in the church. It's part of our culture, especially here in the South. It's a part of who everyone is. If we go to church, we have all the right words to say. We even know the Bible verses. We know when to show up. But is it real? Is it real within us? And if it is, what does it look like in our day-to-day -day life? That's what James is going to call us to. It's called real faith in the real world is what we're going to be studying. And this is the message of James. He's saying, you say you're a Christian, so get real. Let's just see. So I want you all to say, get real. get real. Turn to your neighbor and say, get real. <laughs> Never forget that our culture can sniff out hypocrisy like that, right? And what is hypocrisy? Hypocrisy is saying one thing or doing another, or being one way with one group of people or one way with another group of people. And James speaks to that in all kinds of areas, how we treat people, how we react to hard situations, how we speak to one another, what kinds of things come out of our mouths, how we handle our anger, how we treat people who have more money than us, how we treat people who have less money than us. It's all in James. It's very, very practical. And all of these are indicators of our true spiritual condition, what's really going on inside of us. I often thought, what would it be like if somebody put video cameras in all of our homes? And then there was a little website where you could just clock in and see, oh, what are the Larsons doing right now? <laughs> you know, you know, what are the Grahams up to right now? And you could actually hear what people were saying, and everyone's feeling very, very, you know, uh, horrified at the very thought, right? Because we're all hypocrites just a little bit, aren't we? You know, what we are at home is a little different than what we present to the world. We're a, little, we're a little better out to the world than we are. And that's natural. We're humans. We're all in, on a journey. But you know what? Here's the thing. I don't want to be a hypocrite. I want my life to have congruency, to be the same, for me to be the same person when I'm at home just with my husband or with my kids and also when I'm out in the world and when I'm in church. I want it to be the same. That's what James is about being a person of integrity, right? So we're going to go there. It's going to be amazing um, to see what James teaches us through that. Now, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you a little intro to the book of James, and we're going to spend just a little time in the first section of James this morning. And then each week, we're going to cover about half a chapter of James. But James skips all over the place, so I'm not going to be able to go through every single verse. So I really encourage you to read the book of James at home. It takes about 15 minutes to just sit down and read the whole book. Isn't that cool? I love that. That you can just sit down and read a whole book of the Bible in 15 minutes. So do that this week. Please read it all the way through. You'll get some things out of it. You'll be familiar. And you can, of course, talk about it in your life groups. So I'm going to give you a little bit of introductory material now on James. Who is James? Who is this guy that we're listening to, that we're reading? So there are four James mentioned in the scriptures. There's a lot of Jameses in the Bible. Three of them are mentioned in the list of Jesus' apostles. That's both in uh, Luke 6 and Acts 1. You've got James, the brother of John, one of the sons of Zebedee. We've got James, the son of Alphaeus. And then we've got James, the father of Judas, who was an apostle. Not the bad Judas, but the other Judas. There's another Judas who was the apostle. And his father's evident name was evidently James. So those three are mentioned in the list of the apostles. But then there's a fourth James, and he's the brother 
of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus. He is the son of Mary and Joseph. And he was not one of the apostles. And he is probably the writer of this book that we're reading because the other James not around long enough and were not prominent enough in the early church to have written the book. So the book we're reading actually is written by a person who did not believe in Jesus for his whole life. For the whole life of Jesus. In fact, the little we know about James shows that he was on a journey, a spiritual journey. If you look at um, some of the stories about Jesus' life on earth, remember it was his mother and brothers who kept trying to stop him from everything. They kept trying to find him. In Mark 3.21, it says they went to take custody of him for they were saying he's lost his senses. They thought he was crazy. And in John 7.5, it says, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. So we know that James didn't believe in Jesus while Jesus was alive. But then, if you pick up your book of James and start to read it, the very first line says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what changed? What happened? We get a little clue in 1 Corinthians 15, 7 and 8. Let me read you. This is after, this is Paul talking about when Jesus was resurrected from the dead and he appeared to all kinds of people. And it says this, then Jesus appeared to James, mentions James specifically, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me, Paul, as one abnormally born. Jesus appeared to his own brother, James. I'm trying to picture this. James is the little brother. Any little brothers here? You know what a pain you were <laughs> to your big brother. This is James, the little brother of Jesus, who thought he was crazy, who tried to get him to stop, and who then had to go through the indignity and the horror of watching his brother get crucified. I don't care how bad your family relations are, you don't want to watch anybody in your family go through that. And he sees the pain etched on his mother's face. And so I'm thinking James is not only full of sorrow, but anger. What was wrong with you, Jesus? Why couldn't you keep your mouth shut? Look at the shame you brought on our family. Look what you did to mom. And then one day, he sees the risen Jesus standing before him in his glory. And I'm thinking, you know, a dawning revelation is coming over him. He's thinking, wait a minute, didn't I see him dead? And yet, this realization, he really was God. How did I miss that? I lived with him. I ate with him. How did I not know that this was the son of God in my own family? And his heart bursting and, 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 and breaking at the same time. What did he do? Did he drop to his knees and start sobbing? Did he beg for forgiveness? Did they embrace? What did they say to each other? Love to have heard that. And so this moment changed James forever. He went on to be a leader in the Jerusalem church, the first church, the first Christian church. He went on to call himself a servant of God, a servant of Christ. That word means slave. He humbled himself before his own brother, before his Lord, showing wisdom and courage. He had a nickname. Does anybody not other than Paul Graham know what the nickname is uh, that, they, that the apostles gave to James? Anyone know? Camel Knees. Want to guess why he was called Camel Knees? Because he prayed so much on his knees that his knees were all calloused like a camel's. He prayed and he worshipped and he was martyred for his faith in AD 62. So James deserves to be heard, amen? He lived with Jesus. He's closest to Jesus of any other gospel or, or, or New Testament writer. 
Um, and he even kind of sounds like him. You know how families tend to sound similar? Families, uh, brothers tend to talk alike. Well, he tends to talk a lot like Jesus. Very interesting quote from Douglas Moo, who wrote a great commentary on James, says this, that James weaves Jesus' teaching into the very fabric of his own instruction. Again and again, the closest parallels to James' wording will be found in the teachings of Jesus. The author of the letter seems to have been so soaked in the atmosphere and specifics of Jesus' teaching that he can reflect them almost unconsciously. Cool, right? Are you excited to study James? I hope you are, because I'm excited. I think we're going to learn so much here. So let's just jump in to this little first section, all right? We're going to take a little time today just to go into this first bit of James. And we're going to just start with the very first verse. I'm going to stop right there. Um, I promise I won't go this slowly through every verse, but this one verse, I know sometimes pastors do that, you go, oh no, we're here all day. No, but this first verse is really important. It's the foundation, in a sense, of the rest of the book. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. So he's speaking this passage, this book, to all the Jewish believers out scattered all throughout Asia and Galatia. They're all over the place. Not one particular church, but all the believers. And he starts by saying, I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think this is important because none of the rest of the book of James is going to work for you unless we are walking with Jesus. It is, it is a book that is full of practical things. You could read it almost like a self-help book, how to, how to speak better to people, how to treat people better, how to do things with my money. You could try to read it that way and take God out of it, but I'm telling you something, it won't work. Good luck trying. You cannot live this without being a person who is walking with Jesus because it is full of things for us to do. He doesn't talk overtly about the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is underlying all of it. Because remember, when we come to Jesus, remember what happens. We come to him, we say, I believe in you. At any time, any of us, at any place, wherever we are, we can say, Jesus, I believe. And I, I want to become a child of God. Forgive me my sins. And we can walk and become a child of God in that moment. But then what does the Bible say happens in that moment when we become a child of God? He puts his Holy Spirit in us. And it's with that spirit that we're able to live now as we were created to live. It's by listening to the spirit, walking in the spirit, obeying the spirit, Amen. being aware of the spirit. Amen. That's how we live. That's how we were. And that's the order. So we come to Jesus, we get filled with the spirit, he gives us power, and we do what, is, what we need to do to be his people. Amen. It's in that order, not the reverse. There's a risk in the book of James that you're going to see all these things that you should be doing better, and you're going to go, oh, man. I'm not good. And then you start, I got to check this off and check this off and check this off and check this off. And we put that too early. We put that before the empowering of the Holy Spirit. The only way we're going to be able to live, James, is to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. So please keep that in your mind. I want you to promise me that you're not going to walk away from some of these passages with, uh, with spirit of condemnation. Like, oh, I can't do it. I will never be able to do it. I'm just a bad person. No, God can do it in you, but we have to rely on him. We have to rely on him. If you are feeling the conviction of God from this book, and I'm guaranteeing you will, if you feel the conviction of God, it's an opportunity for us to, to drop to our knees and say, Jesus, fill me with your spirit Amen. and to submit and listen to what he has to say, to let him do the work, all right? So that's how, that's how we start this wonderful book, as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's go into this first little passage because he tests us right away with a really hard one. <laughs> All right, here we go. James 1, 2 to 8. 
says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, then you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. This is an incredibly practical little passage for dealing with the trials and the hardships in our life. But there's two truths first. Before we get to kind of the things, the actions we can take that will help us in our trials, there's two truths here. And the first truth is, you're going to face trials. I mean, this would have been obvious to the people he was talking to. These were people who had been scattered, driven out of their homeland centuries before, living still in poverty and under persecution, first as Jewish scattered people, and now as Jewish Christian scattered people, even more so, being persecuted. They struggled. They had trials. And I would guess if we looked around this room at any given time, a good number of us in here are struggling under trials. It's just the way it is, right, with life. Some big, big, big trials, some medium trials, some little trials, but they're trials nonetheless. And if you're not in one right now, you either probably just came out of one or you're about to go into one. <laughs> Hate to say it. Hate to say it. So we need to stop being surprised by this. Do you notice how surprised we always are when bad things happen? We're like, why would God do this to me? Doesn't he love me? He's not good. We get all, we, got, we get so much worked up as if it's a big surprise. Now, that's a human reaction, of course. We hate it. We don't want to be in a trial. But we need to realize that this is part of life on this earth. People in that period that James is speaking to knew this very, very well. Maybe because we're a little more comfortable here in the U.S. that we don't expect it quite as much. But it's going to happen, even Peter, Peter addressing the same group of people that James is, actually, in his book, says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you. So I got bad news for us. <laughs> we're going to have trials. We're going to struggle in this life until we meet Jesus, until we get to heaven. But so our attitude, our prayer needs to be, Lord, not, not always take away the trials. Of course, we pray that God would take them away. But also say, Lord, help me to honor you in the midst of the trials that I face. Help me to be ready for the trials that will most certainly come teach me from this passage. So that's the first truth. You're going you're gonna to face trials. Let's not be surprised. But the second one's a little harder. And it's that trials are a test and God is working. Now, I don't love the sound of that. I don't like the idea of God testing me. I, it feels like God's up there going... Take that, let's see how she handles that one, and let's see how he handles that one. I don't like the, the look of that, the feel of that. And I don't think that's what this passage means. That's not the kind of testing we're talking about. God isn't just looking to trip you up. That's not what he's looking to do. It's the kind of test that you're, you do to see how strong something is. If you build a bridge, you've got to send the truck over it to see that it's strong, to, to make sure that it's going to hold. Test the trials test us in the sense that they're seeing how strong our faith is. Are we going to hold? Are we going to stand firm in the midst of the trial? Or are we just going to fall all to pieces and, and, and give every, all up? It's a test in that way. And I don't believe that God sends the trials for the most part, 
but he is walking with us through the trial. He says he will be with us in the trial. And as he's doing that, he's shoring us up. So for example, the bridge will hold. He wants the bridge to hold. It's the test. He wants us to pass the test. And so he's strengthening the bridge. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing as he's strengthening the bridge as that truck is rolling right over it. You're important. You have an important mission to do. George talked about it last week. We've got an important mission to be God's people here in Greensboro. So we've got to be strong. We've got to be built up for it. The truck's got to be able to get over the bridge. I love the way N.T. Wright puts this. He says, when a Christian is tested, it shows something real is happening. There's that word real. There are many kinds of tests. Actual persecution, which many face today. Fierce and nasty temptations, which can strike suddenly when we're not expecting them. Physical sickness or bereavement. Family or financial troubles, and so on. But you wouldn't be tested unless you were doing something serious. Mechanics don't test scrap metal. They test cars that are going to face tough conditions. Those who follow Jesus the Messiah are not simply supposed to survive. They're supposed to count, to make a difference in the world for all that we need to become strong to face up to the challenge. James is telling us that this perseverance in a trial is going to strengthen you up. It's doing a work in you to make you full and complete. It's growing us into maturity. And you know, if you've walked with Jesus more than a few years, you know this is true. Think back to when you have grown most in your faith. I'm guessing it was not during the happy-go-lucky times. I'm guessing it was during the hardships and the trials because you saw that God was real in the midst of that and he was there. Amen. So what does James tell us to do in order to face these trials, to face them well, to, to, to pass the test? He says, tells us three things. Choose joy, ask for wisdom, and believe. So let's just talk about the first one. And before we do, I want you for a minute to think specifically right now about your own life. And where are you facing a trial? Because like I said, most of us are of some kind, big or small. And this is all meant to be practical. This is not a theoretical discussion. This is something for you to take today and to apply into whatever is going on in your life today. So let's just think about that for a minute as we go in. Because James says a crazy, crazy, crazy thing. He says, consider it pure joy when you encounter trials. Is he insane? (laughs) Like, is he a masochist? What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, let me just tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that as Christians we're supposed to stuff all of our negative feelings and just walk around going, oh, praise the Lord, everything's good, when nothing's good. Okay, that's not what this means. And we have sometimes taken it to mean that. That we just can never say anything negative because that'll bring something negative in the situation. No, we are, we are meant to express what is going on inside of us. We have, there's a reality to who we are and what we're feeling. It needs to come out. And scripture's full of examples of this. We've got David all over the place in the Psalms pouring out his heart and his anger and his fears to the Lord. We've even got Jesus doing it. Jesus, uh, I had forgotten about this little passage, Hebrews 5, 7, when it says, Jesus offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. That was Jesus. So, so we need to cry, we need to feel, we need to express what we're going through, our angers and our fears and our anxieties and so on. We should expect it and allow ourselves to grieve. So what does he mean then? He means considerate joy. Meaning, it's obviously not natural to think of joy in the midst of a trial. 
So you're considering it joy. You are, pl you are adding joy to the situation. Not that you are getting rid of your other feelings. Those will all be there. But you're adding also joy. It's an attitude we take toward what God is doing in the midst of our trial. Think about what you're going through right now. You have a choice every day how you're going to look at that trial. Of course you don't like the trial. No one likes the trial. But we can also add to it unjoy, non-joy. We can add to it, God's being mean to me, I deserve this, it's so-and-so's fault that this is happening, you know, it's never going to get better, this is how my life always is. We can add all of that. That's non-joy. Or we can add joy to it. We can consider it joy. Consider that God is working in me through this trial, that he is going to do a good thing in me through this trial, that God has never left me and is present in this trial, that my friends are here around me because God has placed them in my life to help me in this trial. That's adding joy. We still may be weeping. We still may be frustrated and angry. But we've added on joy. Here's the truth of the matter. The trial's not going anywhere. Unless God decides to heal us and deliver us from the trial, which we also pray for. But it's, it's not going to be over till it's over. So which is better? To add non-joy and get no fruit or begin to add joy? Begin to ask, what God, what are you doing in this, Lord? My heart is breaking, but I'm, I'm holding on to you. I want to hear from you, Lord. I need a word. I need a, 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 a comfort. And he will be there. He will be there. And the fruit of choosing joy, James tells us, is that perseverance will be given to us, which works in us, giving us maturity, which then brings completeness so that we don't lack anything, so then we receive wisdom, and finally the blessing and a crown of life. This is, this is the fruit of choosing joy. So let's add joy to our trials. Consider it joy. Amen? Say, consider it joy. Consider it joy. All right. We're going to, second of all, see another piece of advice that James gives us from this passage when we're in the midst of a trial. He says, ask for wisdom. James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. And I think it's interesting that he tells us in the middle of this whole passage about trials to ask for wisdom. Because you know what? If you're like me, when you're in the middle of something hard, and it's all difficult, and you're mad or sad or whatever, you, you kind of forget the fact that you've got the smartest person in the whole universe on your side. Do you forget that? What's happening? What's going to happen? What do I do? There's a really smart person named God who knows everything. He's really, really smart, and he gets your situation. He knows what you need. He knows what's going to happen. He's present there, and all we need to do is ask for wisdom, and he'll give it. How marvelous is that? Do we forget sometimes in the middle of what we're going through to ask God, just give me wisdom, Lord, in the middle of this trial, middle of this problem? I have a really, really good friend from New York uh, who uh, several years ago went through a very terrible trial. And it involved everything from abuse and separation and divorce and uh, court cases and financial issues. She had to find a job. She had little kids. Her whole life was upended. And somewhere in the midst of this process, God led her to this verse. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. So. In the midst of her sorrow, which she was certainly very sorrowful, very, very worried about everything that was happening, as she tried to figure out where she should live that would be safe for her and her kids, she asked God for wisdom. 
And as she was in the middle of trials and court things and trying to figure out the legal part of all of it, she asked God for wisdom. And while she was trying to find a job, she hadn't worked for years because she was an at-home mom, and now suddenly she had to find a job. While she was looking for a job, she was asking God for wisdom. And as she was dealing with her own grief and her own pain and trying to heal from that, she was asking God for wisdom. And if she was here this morning, and I've asked her permission to share the story, if she was here this morning, she would run right up here on the stage and she would say, every time I asked God for wisdom, he gave it. Every time. Not one time did he not give incredible, practical wisdom for her situation. And, you know, when I was going through my own smaller trial of trying to find a job and trying to see where I was called to work and to be a, a pastor, she kept saying to me, just ask God for wisdom and he's going to give it. She was having faith for me in that situation. Nothing builds your faith more than to be in a situation that seems bleak indeed and to see God begin to move, to begin to, to answer a prayer and to give you an idea of the next step to go and you just see him there and maybe things aren't quite the way you thought they were going to be and it didn't work out and the wisdom isn't quite yours, but that's what makes a God wisdom and not your wisdom. There's nothing like it because you realize God's here. He's real. He's working in my life. It builds your faith. Ask for wisdom in the middle of your trial. So we're going to consider joy. Say, consider joy. joy. We're going to ask for wisdom. Say, ask for wisdom. wisdom. And finally, we're going to believe and not doubt. Let me read to you from James 1, 6 to 8. When you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. James is giving almost like a formula, right? If you want to grow through your trials, you need wisdom. And if you want wisdom, you need to believe and not doubt. When we're doubting God, when we're doubting his goodness, if he's even here in the midst of my problems, we are unstable in the trial. The trial makes you unstable enough. But adding doubt to that makes you more unstable. And James is saying, when we believe and trust, even though we don't see, we're stable, we receive wisdom, and we're able to stand in the trial, even though wind might be blowing us back and forth, and the waves are coming, and the rain is coming down, but we're, we're solid, we're standing on, on the rock, on the faith in God. I can remember this, even as a young believer, and this is weird how my mind worked, but I remember then, I hadn't really gone through any major trials at this point, I was a very young believer, but I remember thinking, you know, if I'm gonna stand firm during the trial and hold on to my faith, I better figure out what everything means now when things aren't going badly. So I would study, I would study, you know, why does God let good things happen, bad things happen to good people, and why do trials come, and, and why sometimes people are healed and sometimes people are not healed, and why, where do we go when we die? And I, I remember, like, really wanting to understand all of this, because I had this kind of intuitive feeling, even as a young woman, that if I would lay a foundation like that, that somehow that would hold me, somehow I'd be able to stand a little more firmly when the trials did come. I always say it's not the time to ask God why in the middle of the trial. We're just not in a place to think all that logically in the middle of a trial. Uh, of course, it's natural for us to ask why are you having this happen, but, but it really to me, in the midst of a trial is the time to just hold on tight. It's like to grab that life raft and say, you know what, I've got questions about why God's letting this happen. I've got questions about if he's even here. I don't really feel him, but I'm just holding on. Because this faith has been with me for whatever many years it's been with me, and I'm just going to hold on and, and see what happens. Let me, let me give you an example. 
If you are in a boat and it all capsizes and now you're out in the stormy waves and the waves are coming over you and you can barely breathe and you feel you're sinking down and you find a piece of wood and you grab onto the wood, you don't think in that moment, I wonder what kind of wood this is made out of and if it's porous or not and if it would hold my weight and I wonder what the dimensions are. No, you don't think that way at all. You hold on to the wood for dear life. And if it holds you, it holds you. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But that's, that's what you do. You don't figure it out in the midst of the trial. You hold on. You hold on. Like with David, we say, I believe I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He's here. And, and so I just think we don't have the mental energy when we're in the middle of the trial. To do a lot of figuring it all out, that's the moment to hold on. To cast your cares on God. Declare the faith you do have and hold on. You may be surprised when you hold on through a trial, when you start to come out the other side and it passes by you. You look back and you say, I'm so glad I just held on because God was faithful. He was strong. That wood held. The bridge was strong enough. So look back over your life. When did your relationship with God grow the most in your life? Was it in the easy times? Or was it in a trial, in difficulties when he showed up when he was there. And here's the thing. I realize that knowing that doesn't really help you when you're in right in the middle of the trial. <laughs> I got to say this. People really struggling under a severe trial, I give them a pass on all of this, okay? You, if you're in a severe trial, you can, you can scream and yell and shout why, and you can be cranky and, with me, and you can, I give you a pass. I mean, I'm in a bad mood if I have a headache, right? <laughs> so, you know, it, if... If you're going under a severe trial, you've had a severe crisis in your life, you've lost someone, you know, I give you a pass. This passage is not an opportunity for us as Christians to look at someone going through a trial and say, consider it joy. Okay? It's not what we do for people who are in a severe trial. And if you're this way this morning, if you're struggling, I just hope you sense us just loving on you. We just, we just want to love you. Don't expect anything of you. Don't expect super spirituality from anybody when they're in the middle of a trial. But this is a passage for us to keep trying to absorb, especially when times aren't quite so bad, to absorb this passage. To decide in advance how we're going to approach the trials that are going to come in our life. To trust that God is going to bring something good out of them and he's bringing maturity and perseverance out of our lives. And hopefully the next time we do get into a trial, some of this will bubble back up. (laughs) And we'll remember that through our fears and difficulties to say, I'm seeking wisdom, God, from you. Through our pain and anxiety, say, I'm going to choose joy, God. And through our tears and grief to say, I believe, God, that you are good. You are good. We do something in the vineyard called ministry time at the end of a service. And it's a time for us to be ministered to, but I also like to call it response time because I think of it as a moment for us to respond to what we've just heard. That often in a message, there's something that has spoken to you, something that has started to move within your soul. Message, maybe even through a song. That God is speaking, that God's here. He is real, and he is here, and he's speaking to us. And so this morning, there may be something that God is, is stirring in your heart, perhaps about a trial that you're in or something that you're afraid of is going to happen. 
And this is an opportunity for us to respond to the Lord, to say, I'm here, I want to offer this to you, I want to lay it before you. And so that's why each week we're going to have opportunities for you to come up at this part of the service. After the sermon, while the song is going to be playing, there's opportunity for you to get prayer. So you can respond by receiving prayer. Maybe you say, I'm, I'm in something so deep, I need someone to pray with me. So come up. The prayer, prayer has been moved to the sides in these two tables, so you can go to either of those to get prayer. You can always come up and just kneel on this beautiful big rug here, or sit. You can always kneel at the stage. But this is an opportunity for you to respond to the Lord, to let him minister to you where you are and, and confirm what has been, what's stirring in your heart. I don't want anybody to leave this morning without knowing that God cares for you, that he's present with you in your trial, that he's going to help you to be a bridge that'll hold in this trial, that he's going to give wisdom to you, that he's going to give you joy even to add on to everything else you're feeling, that he is present. So I'd like us just to take a moment. This is a moment of response. You can close your eyes if you'd like. And I want us to just bring before God where we're struggling. Maybe you're struggling with a physical trial, sickness or disease or disability or pain. Maybe you're struggling with a trial of living. Maybe it's your job, maybe it's finances, maybe it's your house. Maybe it's just not having a job or having a difficult time with the job you're having. Maybe it's an interpersonal trial. People in your family, people and friends, just struggles with people in your f that you know. Maybe it's an inner struggle, an inner trial of depression or anxiety, sadness, disappointment. Maybe it's temptations that just keep coming. You just know they're not pleasing to God and you're trying to fight it, but it's just hard. I want you in your own mind to name this trial before God and begin to bring it to him. Holy Spirit, come. If you want to bring that trial before God right now, would you just stand? Would you stand and say, I'm bringing it to you, God. I I'm, I'm don't have it fully worked out. But I want to consider a joy. I'm going to ask you for wisdom. Believe that you're present in that. Just stand and bring it to him. And as the song is going to play, this is your moment to respond to him. Either in your seats to come forward for prayer. Um, just take a moment and give this trial to him.